I don't know where I picked up the summer cold, but uh, please bear with me. I hope my voice lasts this morning. Well, to those of you who are parents or who may become parents, I want to ask this. What do you most want to pass on to your children? Now, one of the first things that comes to the minds of many is money. Uh, parents want their children uh, to share some of their assets, their estate. Though I did see a bumper sticker once. You've probably seen it on the back of a very nice car. It says, I'm enjoying my kids' inheritance. Uh, that's... But if they're able, generally parents do want to pass on something of their material wealth to their children. But most of I'm sure would say, what we really want is something much more much more basic and important than that. Instead of just monetary capital, we want to pass on moral capital to our kids. We're concerned about more than just our children's ability to make a good living. We want our children to know how to live well. And if we think about it, I'm sure most parents would say that they want most to pass on their moral and spiritual values. You've heard the term traditional family values. It's uh, comes up quite often, especially in conservative circles. And the term itself suggests the notion that that these values are not made up. They're passed on. They're part of a tradition that uh, goes from one generation to the next. They're, They're a great inheritance which we receive from our parents before us. But as Christians, the inheritance we receive is not just from our families. As members of God's family, Christ's family, we are heirs of God And there are traditional family values that are peculiar to the spiritual family of the church. And it's those values that Paul the Apostle, who is our spiritual parent, he wants to pass on to us in the second half of Romans chapter 12. He's introduced the notion of our being a part of one body earlier in the chapter, the one body of Christ, which is his church. And then Paul expanded on the way in which that one body now has many members. And now Paul describes the qualities of life that ought to animate and permeate that body. And among those qualities, the one reigns supreme. That quality is sincere love. Sincere love. Love must be sincere. Uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Now, in the Greek original, there are only two words. It simply says, sincere love, as if that's the title or the heading of what is to come. It's as if Paul is saying, let me tell you about the one family value that stands above all others, that one quality that has been passed down to us from the Lord Jesus himself, who said that this was to be the most significant distinguishing mark of his disciples. Let me tell you about this quality of love. For if we do not have love, we have nothing. And for love here, Paul uses the Greek word agape. I'm sure most of you have heard about agape. Agape was not a new word. Christians didn't invent that word. It already existed in Greek, but it was not a common word. And perhaps the more common Greek words for love already had negative associations, or perhaps they were too laden with pagan concepts, but whatever the reason, the Christians chose to take this less common word for love, agape, and to fill it with new meaning, uh, describing the highest of moral virtues. It was now defined in terms of the revelation of God in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, as no one else, shows us just what love is. 
Agape love, real love, sincere love, the love that flows from God himself. Jesus shows us what love looks like. And so Paul writes, let your agape love be sincere. Let it be genuine. Let it be authentic. Literally, without hypocrisy. Don't just pretend to love as if it were some pretense, a masquerade, an outward show. But love truly from the depths of your inner being. Now, the assumption here is that that we can be tempted to love hypocritically, to appear to be loving for some self-seeking, self-exalting reason, and people do it all the time. And let me confess, such hypocritical love is a pastoral vocational hazard. You see, as a pastor, I am expected to be a loving person. And quite often, I battle within myself whether I'm really doing something to help someone for their benefit or for mine. It's very subtle. Now, I suppose being a loving person, I'm supposed to be that kind of person, so I want to be seen as a loving person. But that's got it wrong. God sees through our pretense, our hypocrisy. Now, I suppose insincere love is better than sincere evil, Uh, And sometimes an insincere love is all that we can muster. But God wants what is sincere. He wants what is authentic. He wants what flows from our hearts. So let me tell you what true, sincere love looks like, Paul says. And Paul goes to a list. It's as if he holds up a prism to this thing called agape and lets its light kind of diffuse into all its various colors so that we can see what it's really like. Because this word love, as we all know in our culture, is defined in all sorts of ways. Walt Disney defines it one way, and pop culture and music defines it another way, and and Jane Austen defines it another way. But but here is the biblical understanding that comes through Jesus himself. And there, there are various qualities that present together a beautiful picture of what human beings were created to look like in conformity to the very image of Christ. Well, first of all, sincere love, contrary to what you might think, sincere love must be morally discerning. Verse 9, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, perhaps you've seen another bumper sticker. This one, I'm sure, that's meant to take a stab at the religious right. It says, hate is not a family value. Well, here Paul would beg to disagree. The first thing that Paul says about sincere love is that it hates. Now, importantly, Paul doesn't say anything about hating people who oppose you. Be very clear about that. In fact, we'll see in a minute, Paul will say just the opposite to that. But sincere love, he says, must hate. And the word Paul uses here is a very strong one. It means to detest, to abhor, to loathe. Sincere love must hate evil. But that's exactly the kind of love that God has. His wrath is a direct consequence of his love. I mean, if someone, if I I sincerely love somebody, and if I sincerely desire their welfare, won't I naturally hate all that would destroy them? I should hate the destructive power of cancer. I should hate the threat of terrorism. I should hate the addictive power of greed. I should hate the abuse of drugs or alcohol or sex. All these things that so destroy people's lives. 
You see, sincere love is no sentimental fantasy. It's no mere blind emotion that feels good about everything and everybody. I mean, the silly tolerance of all things except anything that is intolerant that so flippantly espouse these days. That's just ridiculous. No, sincere love is morally discerning. It recognizes that some things are evil and cannot and must not be loved. I mean, what kind of family value would not properly teach a, a hatred of racism or a hatred of violent abuse of women and children? I hope you have that kind of hatred. There are things that you should hate because they are inherently evil. And so just as goodness is a beautiful thing and ought to draw us, ought to be attractive to us, so evil should be ugly to you. It should be offensive. It should be repulsive. It should be disgusting. And if it's not, there's something wrong with you. Unfortunately, we've become so accustomed to some forms of evil, even within ourselves, that we lose our distaste of it. As Alexander uh, Pope once wrote, vice is a monster of such frightful mane as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft. Familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Check yourself. Have you lost some of that disgust, that hatred, Uh, That hatred of evil in its many forms, do you see it as God sees it? That which spoils and defaces and destroys his good world. Hate is a family value if it is hateful of the right thing. Hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. And so sincere love must be morally discerning. Now the second quality of sincere love Paul mentions is that it's, it's filled with family affection. Uh, verse 2, be devoted, <clears throat> be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he says. Now, both the key words in this verse are, are commonly used to speak of the love that is expected in a family. Be devoted to one another is a word that's used especially <clears throat> of the love of a parent for a child. And brotherly love is the word Philadelphia, we all recognize, which is the love of a brother and sister, a sibling. And so family affection is particularly appropriate for church relationships because family affection is something we don't choose. Family affection is an obligation that is thrust upon us. You have a duty to be loyally devoted to members of your own family. You can choose your friends. You're stuck with your family. And it's this family affection that ought to characterize church relationships. We're brothers and sisters together in our common union with Jesus Christ and in our common relationship with God as our Father. We're united in one family. And so, as a result, we have a duty to one another. Now, family affection can mean different things to different people. I, the family I came from <clears throat> had three boys, three brothers, and that has a different kind of family affection 
than the kind of affection my wife Susan came from, where she had three girls. Now, uh, Susan often had to prod me to be more expressive in my affection within my family. That's just the way it is. But I still love my family. And so we may have different ways in which this uh, family affection looks like in our church. But if it means anything, thank you for the water. <clears throat> oh, yes, thank you. <clears throat> If it means anything, there's a sense of loyalty to one another. We don't give up on one another when things get tough, where there's hardship, where, where there's a, a crisis or, or a great need. I remember this particularly in relationship to my father, who was not particularly affectionate. Uh, but I always knew that if I got in trouble, he would be there. He would come to my rescue. And I think that ought to be true of a church family. You ought to feel... But if you have a crisis in your life, you can call someone in this church family at 2 a.m. in the morning, and they will help you. We have a duty to one another, a family affection. That's very important. Uh, It's a sign, it's a quality of this sincere love that ought to characterize the church. And then Paul says, honor one another above yourselves, or this is sometimes translated, outdo one another in showing honor. And so uh, sincere love is quick to bestow honor. Now this isn't talking about uh, handing out trophies and ribbons. Uh, It's about the attitude that we convey convey to one another, an attitude of respect and esteem. It's the attitude that says, I think you are important. I value you. I appreciate you as a person. And it's an honor that's not based on social position or on wealth or a position of power or even on one's achievements or abilities. It is the honor that is due to a person simply because they're created in the image of God. And when you honor someone, you are honoring the God who created them. We we are to show honor to one another. Uh, and this kind of honor, honestly, is often conveyed in very little things. I mean, do you really listen to people when they talk to you? Uh, do, do, do you thank them for the work that they do? Do you, do you ask for and respect the opinions of other people? And I confess there are times when I do not show honor to my wife. She sometimes catches me on this. She's talking to me. And I'm reading the paper, doing emails. She keeps talking. I don't stop and listen and pay attention. Little things show honor. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Sincere love recognizes a person's worth and value. It's quick to show honor. A fourth characteristic of sincere love found in verse 11. He says, never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. It's, it's, it's what we might call passion, enthusiasm, taking the original Greek meaning of that word, possessed by a God. For the phrase, keep your spiritual fervor, probably, probably refers to the Holy Spirit here with a sense of be set on fire, literally be boiling over by and with the Spirit of God. Now this, this quality of sincere love has a God-empowered quality. It's, it's driven by a work of God in our own hearts. It flows out of your, uh, God's work in our lives. 
enthusiasm. Now, our culture recognizes passion and enthusiasm as an admirable quality when it comes to one's allegiance to a sports team, an enthusiastic supporter of a team. He's called a fan, a great fan, big fan. But you take that passion and apply it to a religious context, it's not always seen in such a positive light. No, in the original, in the arena of religious devotion, uh, an enthusiastic adherent is called a raving fanatic. In fact, I have on my shelf in my study a 600-page book by an Oxford professor outlining all that he thought was wrong with religion in the history of the Church of England. And the title of that book is Enthusiasm. But I ask you, how can enthusiasm, how can passion with regard to the gospel be a bad thing? You see, God doesn't just want our minds. He wants our hearts. Again, this, this passion doesn't have to take a particular form. Uh, not everybody has to jump up and down and wave their arms. I mean, some of us uh, are sort of northern European in temperament. Um, I, I try to raise my hand sometimes, but I feel very self-conscious doing it. Uh, no, it can be expressed in different ways. But deep inside, there's going to be a passion for, for, for the Lord and for his gospel and what he's done. Again, if we don't respond with something of that passion, there's something wrong with us. Our emotions are not in tune with the truth, reality. And frankly, to live with an emotionally flat faith can be deadening to your spiritual life. It's like living in an emotionally flat marriage. You need to confess it, and you need to seek help. You need to, to do some of the things that can warm your heart. And sometimes that simply means doing the things you would do if you really did love God from your heart, and do them even when you don't feel like it. Now, is that hypocrisy? No. I think it's doing what you ought to do. Reading God's word, worshiping with his people, acting in kindness, praying, and asking God to, to have your emotions follow, to, to allow you to experience the reality that you're engaged in. And so Paul urges us to engage in a holy passion, not lacking in zeal. And though lest we get carried away with our experience alone, he reminds us then we're to keep our focus by serving the Lord, he says. As, this is, as John Stott puts it, this will keep zeal rooted in reality. Sincere love, it's enthused by the Spirit of God. And Paul continues in verse 12, Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now all three of these admonitions point to one reality, and that is living in sincere love in this world is not easy. It will require prayerful patience as we live in the hope of what is yet to come. Is he living in love will not be without heartache. People you love will let you down. Some people you invest a lot of time in will walk away without so much as a thank you. Others will turn against you. Others you thought had repented and truly changed will fall back into their old ways. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You see, love by its very nature makes you vulnerable to such heartache. There will be afflictions of other kinds too. You will get sick. You will get injured. 
You'll be rejected for a job that you had your heart set on. You may have a tragic accident that changes your life. But don't despair, Paul says. Be joyful in hope. Hope. The best is yet to be. The hope of God's glorious future for those who trust in Christ. Be patient when things get tough. God is not finished with all that He has planned for you. And God will bring trials into your life to test your faith. And in those times, you'll be tempted to say, no, God is not really great. He's not in control of this world. How could He be and allow this to happen to me? Or God is not really good. If He was, how would He allow this to happen to me? No, you'll be tested in those areas. And that's when you need to keep on praying. Keep on praying turning to the Lord, sincere love. That is the real thing, not a cheap imitation. Sincere love perseveres in faith with patient prayer. True love prays. But true love also acts, Paul says. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Sincere love is practically generous. And here Paul uses that word commonly translated as fellowship. Koinonia. Fellowship. And when we think of fellowship, we often think of coffee after worship service, potluck dinners on Sunday nights. When Paul uses this word fellowship, he thought in terms of the fellowship, uh, in terms of giving money or time or some tangible resource to meet a practical need. This is the sharing of life that constitutes true fellowship. Now, this is the fellowship that the, the first Christians shared that Luke tells us about in Acts chapter 2 when they met daily and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, having everything in common, selling their possessions, giving to anyone as who has, has need. That was fellowship. Fellowship. It's a demonstration of sincere love. It's characterized by practical generosity. And let me say, it doesn't take a lot of money to engage in this kind of fellowship. Uh, Susan and I remember very well the, the very practical generosity this act of fellowship demonstrated to us by a dear woman <clears throat> who was a part of our church when we first came here, Joe Anderson. Many of you will remember Joe, who's gone on to be with the Lord. We just moved into Annadale. We lived in a rental house which had been previously occupied by four single men and a dog. It needed some work, to say the least. And, and Joe <clears throat> saw our situation, and she came to us. She said to Susan, she said, tell me, what is the job in the cleaning of this house that you're moving into, what is the job that you most don't want to do? I want to do it for you. Well, Joe ended up cleaning the basement bathroom, a scraping grungy mildew from the walls. That's practical generosity. That's true fellowship. Sincere love. Now the sixth quality Paul mentions is very similar in, in a sense. It's active hospitality. Hospitality. Sharing your life. Sharing your home. Uh, this is a very important Christian virtue. And particularly in the day in which Paul lived, in which there's no Holiday Inn or Motel 6, uh, traveling missionaries, Itinerant preachers, they needed hospitality. Christians would open their homes to one another. Uh, and, and you see, our desire to show hospitality 
should be an expression of our own experience of the gospel itself. We were strangers, but in the gospel, God himself brought us into his household. He opened the doors to us, and so we should do with others. Uh, being actively hospitable. Paul actually says that we're to pursue hospitality here. We shouldn't be grudging about it. No, we should seek out opportunities to have others into our homes. Uh, it's, it's a sincere mark of Christ-like love which holds all things, even our homes, as a free gift from the hand of God and therefore something to be shared with others. And, and haven't you noticed people who live like that? Their home always seems to be full of people, even strangers. And it's not necessarily the people with the biggest houses who live this way. No, it's the people with the biggest hearts. It's not those with the most spare bedrooms. It's those with the most love to spare who exhibit this kind of hospitality. It's a a quality of sincere love that flows from the gospel in a person's life. Now, there are two more qualities Paul mentions here. Verse 13, rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. This is what we call a quality of sympathy, to feel with other people, to share their joys, to share their pain. And I think this can be very hard for us when we view life as a zero-sum game. You understand what I mean by that? Uh, we, We subconsciously believe that the sum total of all the joys and happiness on the one hand and all the pain and the sorrow on the other has to balance out so that when it's all added together, it equals zero. So whatever joy someone else gets then lessens what is possible for me to get. And if a colleague gets some honor or promotion, then, then, then it means I don't get it. Uh, So we're all competing against one another for the same limited amount of joy and happiness. Every bit of praise that my father gives to my brother is an implicit rebuke to me. And haven't we all had something of that secret delight in the failure or fall of someone with whom we've compared ourselves? The Germans have a word for that, schadenfreude, the joy of unfortunate circumstances. It goes the other way, too. Writer Gore Vidal is quoted as saying, every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. It's a competitive world. So how can I rejoice with those who rejoice? Or why should I weep with those who weep? Well, it is love. Sincere love that answers that question. For love overcomes our self-centeredness. Love is a denial of seeing all the world through your own self-interest. Love, you see, recognizes That life is not a zero-sum game since God is love. There's an infinite amount of love to go around. We can never exhaust it. In fact, the more I give it away, the more of it I receive. And so I'm not diminished by the success of others. Not at all. In love, I can rejoice with Him. For my success comes from a God with a limitless supply of love to give away. And I think this, this attitude is fueled when we see each other as fellow family members. You know, parents naturally rejoice in the joys of their children. And they suffer when their children suffer. In fact, they say a parent can only be as happy 
as their least happy child. And so we ought to identify with others in the same way, sharing each other's joys, sharing each other's heartaches. And this kind of sympathy doubles the joys and it halves the pain. Sincere love is sympathetic. It rejoices with those who rejoice. It mourns with those who mourn. And Paul goes on. I I can't say enough about being humble-minded, he says. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Again, this relates to this idea of having our minds transformed by the truth of the gospel. That we need to be humble toward one another, taking that humility that was so characterized by Jesus himself and let it become a part of ourselves. Uh, There's no place for snobbery among Christians. There should be no upper and lower classes in the church. We're all equally sinners, equally forgiven by God's grace. And so I ask you, search your own heart. Do you evaluate people on the basis of what they can do for you? Or do you look at them through the eyes of Christ? There's no place for self-exalting pride among God's people. Not in there if there's a sincere love. And so this is what it looks like. It's this love, this love that is now given a new definition because of what Jesus has done. It's morally discerning. It's filled with family affection. It's quick to bestow honor. It's passionate. It's prayerfully patient. It's practically generous. It's actively hospitable. It's sympathetic. It's humble-minded. And you may look at that list and and immediately feel, wow, I ought to do this more. I know I'm not doing it as I ought. But I want you to look at it for a moment and say, what, what a beautiful thing this is. What a beautiful thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a, in a community where this sort of thing was truly experienced? Think about what it would be like to be a part of a community in which you could feel free to, to, to put down your guard, quit thinking you have to put forward some sort of false piety. A place where you could be free from the sense that people are always judging you. A a, a community where we could truly give of ourselves to one another in very practical ways, building each other up, not tearing each other down. Imagine that kind of community. It's a wonderful thought. It's a beautiful thing. And I would say it's nothing less than a picture of heaven. And our experience in the church should give us just a taste, a glimpse of what life in heaven is like. And so I let, I'd say let this description of love inspire you to new heights of sincere love here and now. And perhaps you might just, just take one aspect of it this week and say there's one aspect here that I'd like to grow in, I'd like to develop. And take that and say, Lord, how can you help me grow in this one area? But I want to say also, as we think of this kind of love, that we need to be realistic. For the kingdom of God has not yet arrived on earth. We still live in a fallen world. It's a spoiled world. It's a sinful world. And as long as we live, we will be confronted with the reality of love's opposition. And Paul turns to this in the last five verses of our passage that I want to touch on briefly. He talks about how sincere love responds to those who oppose us. He writes in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Verse 18, live at peace with everyone. 
But then he qualifies that statement. If it is possible, so much as it depends on you. You see, Paul knows that our efforts for peace aren't always going to be successful. But still, he says, you're to act unilaterally. You must do your part, even if the other party doesn't do theirs. Your efforts may not be reciprocated. They may not be appreciated. Do what you can to seek peace, harmony, anyway. And actually, this theme of love's response to those who oppose us, it was introduced back in verse 14. Bless those who persecute, persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's picked up again in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And here Paul is drawing directly on the teaching of our Lord Jesus. Who said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. If someone forces you to go with one mile, go with him two miles. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And even beyond that, Paul draws on the tradition of the wisdom of the Old Testament. He quotes Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will reap burning coals on his head. Now, that's a rather obscure metaphor, but in this context, that probably speaks of, of bringing a person to the point of shame for the way they've treated you. You see, this is a traditional Christian family value. It's a principle of non-retaliation. It is this, you see, that allows us to hate evil, but requires us to love an evil person. And I don't think there's anything that so cuts against the grain of our own natural ways of thinking than this. There's nothing so foreign to the ways of the world, so difficult for us to put into practice than this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea, says C.S. Lewis, until they have something to forgive. Then it becomes different. Because, because what Paul's calling us to here, it, it, it just doesn't seem fair. I mean, when someone does me wrong, I have a right to get him back, don't I? He's got it coming. And where's the justice of letting him get away with such an outrageous offense? And then there's the weakness of it. George Bernard Shaw called forgiveness a beggar's refuge. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called forgiveness a slave morality. Vengeance. That's a form of power. And it's hatred. It energizes. It motivates. It's said that the American prisoners who survived the World War II Battle of Bataan were forced on their terrible death march. They were, they were prodded by the bayonets of their captors. They were forced to eat rotten food. No hope of escape. These prisoners tell us that it was their hate that gave them the power to survive. But forgiveness, it's for wimps. What do you think? The truth is it is unfair. And in the eyes of the world, this sort of non-retaliation is a form of weakness. But don't you see? That's exactly how the cross of Christ appeared. The cross, it's foolish, it's foolish to the world. It was the greatest miscarriage of justice the world had ever seen. But Jesus let it happen. 
As Peter writes, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Even as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. Aren't we to be followers of a crucified Savior? And as for fairness, there is one thing here that makes all the difference. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, I, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. You see, the believer, the Christian believer knows that we should not expect fairness in this life. It's not our job. Now, it's the job of some people. We'll talk about that next week. But as private citizens in our personal relationships, fairness, justice, in this sense, is not our job. It's God's job. And the believer knows that God will do that job. That God himself will have the last word. No one ever gets away with anything. Not ultimately. The scales of justice will be seen to be perfectly just. For when Jesus himself suffered, Peter tells us, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. And the Christian also knows there is a power greater than vengeance. It is the power of a merciful love. It's that power that has taken hold of us. It is that power that has been revealed in the cross. It is that power that has been unleashed in the gospel. And I think of the power of the non-retaliation, the, the spirit of mercy and forgiveness shown by those family members, of those murdered in the church in South Carolina, and even this very week, by Audrey DuBose. She was the mother of the man killed by a policeman in Cincinnati. In her public statement, she read first from Psalm 93. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. To all those reporters, to all those cameras, that was her affirmation. And then she said of the shooter, I can forgive him. I can forgive anybody. For God forgave us. And those words of mercy and forgiveness, instead of anger and violent revenge, those words helped to prevent further violence in Cincinnati. And how that kind of non-retaliation needs to be learned in South Sudan. Pray. For South Sudan. Retaliation keeps going back and forth, back and forth. It gets worse and worse. And how this kind of non-retaliation needs to be learned in our own lives. In your family, in your marriage, in your friendships, in the church. Learn to forgive. Learn to forgive. And there are only two alternatives, Paul says. Either you will be overcome by evil... As by repaying evil for evil, you become sucked into that sphere yourself. As one ancient Christian wrote, the enemy has overcome us when he makes us like himself. Either you'll be overcome by evil, or you overcome evil with good. So think about it. Let me give you a tangible hypothetical. 
This actually happened at Emmanuel Bible Church a couple months ago. People were driving up to church, and there were protesters around the church. Imagine coming up here, protesters, surrounding our building, ugly signs, chants. Natural reaction is to get angry. But what would you do next? Yell back? Pick a fight? I'd hope you give them coffee and donuts. When they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Think about this. Maybe even think about this on social media, the way you respond to blogs. The attitude of Christ. It's different. It's different than the world. And this attitude of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy, it's not a sign of weakness. For there is nothing that requires more strength in all of life. For forgiveness always comes at a personal cost. And for us, it's the cost of our Savior on the cross. Love must be sincere. It's a beautiful picture. But is it really possible, I mean, among us, ordinary people, is it really possible in the kind of life that we live here in suburban, modern America? I don't think so. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not possible for us. We're, we're self-centered, selfish people. We can't live like this. And that's why God sent his son into the world. Not just to show us what this kind of life looks like, though he does that. He sent his son into the world to atone for our failure to live like this. And then by the power of the Spirit, he's come as he's raised to new life to empower us in some measure here and now to share his life so that we might be conformed more and more to his image so that in some measure we might indeed Reflect this sincere love, this agape that is his to give. Sincere love, it's only possible as we're joined to the source of that sincere love, Jesus Christ. That's why we come to this table. This table here, we remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died because we do not live this way. He rose again so that we could. That's the message. And so we come once again to say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, empower us. By your Spirit, live in me so that I might more and more express this beautiful life that you set forth for us, that you call us to, that one day we will experience in all its fullness. That's the gospel. As our servers come forward as we prepare for the Lord's table, let's pray together. Lord, encourage our hearts by this admonition from your word, this beautiful description of what this sincere, authentic, real love looks like. It's the love of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Lord, set our hearts on Christ. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for those ways 
perhaps even things that come to mind even now, perhaps even from this morning where we have violated this standard. Forgive us, Lord. And now, Lord, empower us by your Spirit as we come to this table. May we receive the elements in faith, the broken body, the shed blood, once again reminding us of the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and this demonstration of sincere love. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.